Namo Tassa Bhagavato Harahato Samma Sambodasa Namo Tassa Bhagavato Harahato Samma Sambodasa Namo Tassa Bhagavato Harahato Samma Sambodasa Homage to the Buddha, the blessed, noble, and fully self-enlightened one. Uh, just one or two questions here, so we can answer those first. Um, I get a high-pitched, I can't quite read the, the other word, I think it's sound, is it? In my ears, when my mind is clear. Yeah, sound. Is that normal? Well, the next sign is hairs on the palms of your hand. <laughs> when um, John Cage, the composer, wanted to experience perfect silence, um, he sat in a room which was completely um, insulated from sound, and there were two, the two sounds he couldn't escape. One was this drum beat, and one was this high-pitched sound. So there's always <clears throat> the pounding of your heart, and the electrical system. And that's what you're hearing when you're absolutely silent, sort of a high-pitched sound, which is not to be confused with tinnitus. That's, that's something else. That's always there, I'm afraid. So you can choose, you can make that your object. See? Just listening to that. Or you can turn away from it to the breath or whatever, whatever it is, and you'll see the attention just forgets it, you might say. It's the same with these crows. See? If you keep attending to them, then you'll hear. But if you keep turning away, it's as though uh, it filters out. When I used to return to uh, Sri Lanka, um, the noise, inverted commas, <laughs> the sounds of birds and squirrels are absolutely deafening. Yet within about three or four days, you can hear it. Just there, sort of a white sound, you know. So it's up to you. When your mind's very clear, if if you hear this high pitched sound, you can. It's a hearing, hearing, and you're just, just observing it. That's all. Even that will bring about an insight into impermanence, because it sounds continuous. You see, but in Buddhist psychology, it can't be. Because moments of cognition or consciousness arise momentarily and then pass away. See? What can I do? I get... Oh no, I've done that one. <laughs> I keep daydreaming and even falling asleep during practice. What can I do? <laughs> um... Well, the daydreaming, you see, it's just an old habit. It's usually when, sometimes when, when there's not much energy around, the mind just wanders off into these fairy lands. And that's often what we feel when we're feeling a bit drowsy or sleepy. And it's very close to the dream state. So you just have to keep, you know, acknowledging what's happening, come back and uh, do the usual thing of, you know, opening your eyes, let the light in. Don't look around, just let the light in. Or you can stand up. If it's really heavy, if you find yourself falling asleep standing up, then 
go for a walk. But um, in all cases, refuse to be annihilated. And don't worry if you, if you actually do keep falling asleep and you, know, you do this nodding business. You know, until you... <laughs> it's sort of a, sort of a prayer. <laughs> yeah, just keep, keep waking up. So you keep, keep working against it. It's one way of tackling it. Um, and remember that so long as we're doing that, we are um, not putting that added intention into those states. This is the important thing. So what we're experiencing is the product of past intentions. See? Uh, it's just a case of patience, really, just working with it. And uh, I think you'll find it comes in waves. See? So it might, it might come in a two-hour wave or a three-day wave, you know, and you just sort of just work with it. You can, of course, place your attention right where you're feeling the heaviness in the body. See, where do you feel it? See? Just keep moving around the body. That's another way. And you're just feeling different parts of the body and where you feel this heaviness. See? I mean, did you ever feel sleepy at the end of your nose? Have you ever observed your earlobes when you feel sleepy? See, they, they always seem to be awake. And the dullness in the head, you can actually put your attention there and just keep wandering around the dullness, see? And you'd be surprised the energy comes back into the watching. See? It's like being in a fog, lost in a fog, something like that. So you're wide awake, and you're just in the middle of this fog. <laughs> so uh, it's a case of just keep, keep putting that energy into feeling, watching, and you'll see, it'll, it'll, it'll rise for you. So now, um, because the group's very mixed, there are some people who are very new to this practice, new to Buddhism, and some of you are old and grey in the practice. So I just mean to sort of wander around the Buddha's teaching and just try to get an overall view, <clears throat> centering mainly on the actual practice. And the first thing to, uh, I, I like to begin with is the Buddha himself, you know, and just to recognize that uh, he was part of a, a movement in his time uh, where a lot of um, men mainly, um, it's dangerous for women, uh, would go off, just leave the household life in search of um, the end of suffering, or the various words for it, moksha, freedom. Uh, the Buddhists ended up with nirvana. And uh, what was driving them, what was driving them was, first of all, a dislocation in society. It was moving from a pastoral, an easygoing pastoral society to a monarchical. Uh, and the first, the first um, stirrings of a, a capitalist system too, with a new class, you might say, of merchants. So it created a sort of um, uneasiness as to where the society was going. And the other thing that was driving them was the, the horror of the thought of having to be constantly reborn. Because for them, the idea of rebirth was just part and parcel of their belief system. 
So the Buddha is part of that, and uh, it equates to us, doesn't it? You know, our society is in, a, in turmoil, in general, <laughs> generally in turmoil, and, uh, you know, we're stuck with this anxiety, very anxious society, which also expresses itself in, in depression and um, the sort of eternal seeking for pleasure just brings about boredom. Because um, the problem with pleasure is, is that it has an, an inbuilt obsolescence. You, know, you can't keep eating the same chocolate. You've got to try another brand or <laughs> try gobstoppers or something. I mean, anything just to bring a sort of novelty. See, so we say variety is the spice of life, but it's also the cause of dire boredom. And boredom in its worst uh, feelings, in its worst sense, is despair. Because that's when the person loses hope of finding any joy in life, you know, when they drive themselves to constantly be in, in an excited, happy state. So this is the Buddha. The Buddha belonged to a, um, a warrior caste, which had it fairly easy. It was a governing uh, caste. They didn't have to work in the fields. They weren't farmers as such. They owned land. Um, pro- uh, they owned land, but they didn't actually work it. That was for the, uh, for the working caste. <clears throat> and he would have been trained in the arts of uh, warfare, fighting and all that. Uh, there would have been discussions, but it's interesting to think of the Buddha as being illiterate because they didn't write. <laughs> uh, that came much later. The scriptures themselves were always handed down through um, memory and didn't get written for 500 years. So, so when he... Uh, Leaves, he leaves really in a state of confusion because um, he, has a, he has a wife, his child's just born and something in him just drives him away from that family life. Um, I, I, we presume it wasn't a bad relationship <laughs> but more in a sense of an existential, an existential angst, a sort of uh, an identity crisis which grows upon us at some time in our 20s. You know, somewhere in the middle 20s, we, uh, we recognise youth is over and we'd better get doing something. So we normally take work seriously or get married or do something, or at worst, um, become an ascetic. <laughs> Can't handle, yeah. So that was the uh, mental frame with which he went out. And... Uh, as I say, he went out with other people. He wasn't as always alone. And the normal thing was to find a guru, was to find somebody who would teach you, you see. So what he's left is a life of fair, you know, of ease, of pleasure. But uh, there are two incidences in his life which awaken him uh, to a deeper struggle, you might say. The first one was that after a party... You know, he, he sort of wakes up and bodies are strewn around the place and there's probably the smell of vomit and whatnot. And, he's, <laughs> and he, he sees the evanescence, the vanity of pleasure. Hmm? It, do, it no, no longer begins to satisfy him. And this is reinforced uh, by the fact that he uh, wakens up to the reality of sickness, old age and death. Uh, this is put in a mythological way, I'm, I'm sure you know. Of, you know, he's out hunting and he comes across a sick person uh, a very old person and a corpse, and each time he asks, "Does this happen to me?" See, I mean, that's the awakening that, that suddenly you realise 
you also are going to get sick, old, and die. But also with that, there's the, uh, there are these images going around of ascetics, people who've left the, the home life, and it suggests that maybe there was an escape from uh, this form of suffering. So, when, so <clears throat> what he's left there is a very pleasurable, easy life. And he goes out to join these teachers who teach him how to attain what we call the absorptions. Now, the great thing about the absorptions is that once you've developed it, you don't need anything. <clears throat> like the metta we do in the evening, you can develop that be- until it becomes a sort of internal ecstasy. So you're all right. You can you know, sit under a tree and <laughs> eat a few scraps and you're away. You just sit under this tree and you're blissed out. But the unfortunate thing is, with that, and what he found, was that, of course, he, it came to an end. And he was the same old depressed, anxious, uh, Gautama, um, Siddhartha Gautama. See? Siddhartha was his first name. Gautama was his, his, um, his, what you might call his surname. And Sakya would, his, would, be, his, would be his clan. So, um, having done that, having uh, worked with two teachers who taught him how to attain these very lovely inner blissful states, which is there in all religions under various names. Uh, He tries the more ascetic path. This is how it comes in scriptures, although it's not so sequential, you might say. And uh, his great, uh, we think his great teacher there was Nigantha, the Nigantha who started the Jains, who was a great ascetic. Now, the problem with asceticism in this sense of self-mortification, is the understanding that what's at fault is the body, the body itself. So if you didn't feel hungry, how would you ever feel, how would you ever suffer from greed? See? So you begin to not eat or, or only eat a little bit. Uh, you put yourself in ascetic ways so that you don't get attracted to anything. It's a sort of denial of pleasure, a denial of joy. Because even then, uh, it was already written in, the, in what we call now the Hindu scriptures, the Rig Veda and stuff, that the real problem was this Trishna, was desire. Um, even Socrates said the problem of, of all suffering was desire. So that, that wasn't so difficult for him to know, but one answer was, was to kill desire. So we would call that repression or suppression, right? just pushing it away. And um, where has he found that the pleasures of life were useless and, uh, and unprofitable? Uh, he ended up with four years of this work on himself as an ascetic as being unprofitable, useless, and uh, just more suffering. So, <laughs> so he had the good sense to abandon that. Now, when he abandoned that, he, had, he left his five companions who had been with him for quite some time, it seems. And it's by the roadside, and he must have looked fairly dejected, although the scriptures build him up a bit to, to, to look like a god. <laughs> but I would have thought he was depressed and anxious and all the other, all the other stuff, and he just spent six years and got nowhere. And uh, uh, somebody walks past, called Sujata, means a happy birth, fortunate birth, with a, uh, a bowl of rice pudding, which he's going to offer to the local deity. Seeing poor Gautama there, probably her heart was moved, and she thought to offer it to him. Well, I know, I'm sure you all know the salvific effect of rice pudding. 
And on tasting this, presumably, I can't imagine why the thought should have come up otherwise, he remembers his father doing a ploughing ceremony. And it was the way he was attending or looking at or or, um, watching his father doing the ploughing ceremony which uh, brought about uh, an idea, uh, another way of approaching his problem. And this is why, and what it was eventually, of course, was to observe the vipassana. And it's because of this that we call him self-enlightened. There was nobody who taught him that or who, uh, who brought that as a possible way of overcoming suffering. See, it's just that kernel memory. Now, if you think of uh, a child, uh, pre-seven usually, um, you can see when they, when they see something like a bug, see, they lock into it, don't they? It's like a total absorption. There's no word for it because they've never seen it before. And then there's a moment of absolute silence when they're locked into it. And then when they come out, they say, what is it? You know, it's a beetle. See? And once they know it's a beetle, they never look at another beetle again. (laughs) Even though they see it, they never see a beetle. They see this history, see, this conceptual history that we build up around the word beetle. Hmm? Now, the quality of that mind, the quality of that childlike mind, has has all the factors of enlightenment. All the factors of enlightenment. It's absolutely steady attention. It's calm. It's focused. It's completely receptive. And within the receptiveness, there is that question mark. What is it? It's not phrased. It's not put into any language. There's no conceptualization behind it. There's just an absolute pure curiosity. And that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to get back to that, to that state of just pure Uh, observing. Now, why is it that a six, seven or a five-year-old can't become enlightened, you see, or awakened? It's because they don't have this other quality of the knowledge of the Dharma. In other words, we're, we're in this sort of paradoxical situation that this intuitive wisdom, this intuitive intelligence has to be educated before it can actually spark and liberate itself from its delusion. Now, that's the, important, that's the important point to grasp. The delusion, right, lies within the watching. Right? There's something in the way that we're actually looking which is a distortion. And that's why it's so difficult to overcome that distortion because it's in the eye. Hmm? Um, I'll give you an example. Um... When I, when I went for uh, an eye test, this is going back years, you see, uh, he said I had astigmatism in this right eye. Now, uh, for those of you who know nothing about opticians, <laughs> you know this old glass where you get this wavy business in the, in the, in the old glass? You don't do it now, it's done too well. Do you know what I mean? And you look through it and the, and, and the outside waves. So it seems that um, uh, some people like myself have lenses which, are, which have that little distortion in it. Now, I didn't know it was there. As far as I was concerned, I was seeing reality. See? And, it was <laughs> and even when he put my glasses on, I couldn't tell the difference. And it only came back late, lately when I went to another optician about four years ago, where 
I kept looking, and, and this eye was straining. In other words, it wasn't quite right. I just felt it wasn't, there was something wrong. And when I went back for another test, it's because they hadn't factored in this stigmatism. If you take people, say, who are colorblind, see, unless somebody tells them, that's the way they see the world. How can they possibly know otherwise unless somebody tells them? How would I have possibly known that I had this stigmatism and that I was seeing the world in a distorted way if it wasn't for an optician? So <clears throat> here we have the Buddha, you see, the Buddha-to-be, the Bodhisattva. And what he's presuming is that the suffering that he is uh, uh, bearing with, and when we say, uh, uh, say dukkha, uh, because this word dukkha is so... is the platform of his, old te- of his whole teaching. He, in fact, reduced the whole of his teaching to three Pali words, dukkha, dukkha niroda, which means uh, this dukkha and the end of dukkha. Now, this dukkha ranges from the slightest discomfort to the heaviest angst you can think of. It's the whole... It's, it's what happens to us because of this kink in our eye. Because of this delusion. And remember, it's the um, definition of delusion that you don't know where you're deluded. It'd be easy, wouldn't it? Somebody said you're deluded. You'd say, oh, yeah. <laughs> that'd, be, that'd be it. I mean, you know, you'd sit here. I, I would just say, you're deluded. And you all go, oh, that's right. Yeah, so I am. And that's it. You walk out. I'd, I'd lose the group. <laughs> but unfortunately, <laughs> fortunately, it's not, it's, not so, it's not so easy. So... When he, is, uh, when he sits under that tree, and by this time, uh, remember he's had all this practice and he's got a very fierce determination, and he, he, he cannot see anything else. He thinks this is what's uh, going to um, bring about the insight he wants, the understanding he wants, or the, or the, the freedom from this uh, suffering that he has. And he determines, uh, you know, to to stay with it, either he's going to really make it or, or, or die. I mean, it's a very fierce determination. Uh, luckily for him and us, uh, he, he, he sort of cracks it within six hours. Now, even though he saw, even though at that moment there was this complete liberation, you see, it took him, according to the, the myths that surround this moment, um, three nights to work out what he'd actually seen. Hmm? So there's your reflection. He went through dependent origination, which is the psychology of suffering, one way. Then the next night he came back the other way. And the next night he just reaffirmed it by, by going both up and down it. <laughs> and then, then it was all sort of locked in his mind. And the, uh, what he formulated eventually were these four noble truths. So the first truth is this truth that there is suffering, there is unsatisfactoriness. Uh, probably the best word for it is unsatisfactoriness. Um, this life form cannot, be, cannot give us total satisfaction in terms of a deep and lasting happiness. That's what he's saying. And he's saying that there are three reasons for this and these are your three characteristics. We see... Um, we see what we see permanence, we see continuity where there isn't any. Hmm? So even if you take your body, you see, every seven years, every atom is replaced. This is what I'm told, this is what I've read. We have to believe these things. 
Every seven years, all atoms are replaced. So the next time you, know, you look in the mirror, just remind yourself, this face wasn't here seven years ago. <laughs> it's a completely different head. This is an, it's, it's an interesting thing to contemplate. Yeah? And this continuity gives us the idea of something permanent. See? Because it's continuous, we think it's the same thing in a process of change. Like you might get a piece of clay, mould it into a cup, uh, screw it up again and mould it into a saucer. So it's the same clay. So you think it's the same clay, it's just in a process of change. See? But that's not what the Buddha's pointing to. He's actually saying that everything is arising and passing away momentarily. Hmm? So it's not the same clay. Um, one of the examples they give is of uh, billiard balls, you see. So if you touch one billiard, if, if you have a row of billiard balls and you, and you hit the first one, they all move. But it gives you a, an impression of the same force passing through. But in fact, it's, it's each billiard ball is moving for itself. So the understanding is that every conscious moment is arising and passing away. Now, when it passes away, it's not annihilating. It just goes into a state of potential. And that, out of that potential comes the next arising, dependent on what's pushing that potential into actual. Now, you can actually see these things at that sort of level, but it's more, it's more obvious to us when we work at the level of intention. So when you're standing, you see, at, in you know, ready to do some walking meditation, you can see the intention coming and just by saying intending to walk, that is your intention. And you can keep saying intending to walk forever. Nothing's ever going to happen. Yeah? You can even feel the desire to walk. It's like it's pushing you. Yeah? You can build it up to an, an incontrollable desire to walk. <laughs> but nothing happens. See? And then the next minute, something's dropped into the equation and the foot moves. So something has brought what was an intention into an actual, what was a potential into an actual. And that power which does that is the will. The Buddha called that will or <coughs> chetana in his language. And as soon as you've empowered something, that is a karma, that's an act. And as soon as you've acted, then there must be a consequence of that act. It ripples outwards and comes back to you in some way. So the first thing is that everything is momentary. The next um, point was of, uh, of this dukkha, this suffering. So there's, um, there's the, the suffering, the ordinary sufferings of life. You see, now when we talk about the end of suffering here, we're not talking about the end of physical suffering. So the body itself has its own pains and pleasures, and there's not much that the process of liberation would do about that. So the Buddha himself died of um, gastroenteritis from some some poisoning, <laughs> some food that somebody offered him in India. So, <laughs> so it's a case of recognizing that uh, he did not escape physical suffering. Uh, because he was enlightened or awakened, uh, what, he, what, what had ended was the suffering that arises because of our relationship to the body. 
So the suffering that he's talking about is purely mental. Right? It's something that we create within ourselves and we would call emotions, emotional states, mental states. Those are all purified with the process. And the final one was this, what we mentioned this morning, this uh, anatta, this not-self. So remember, this is not a philosophical statement. Right? This is just a, uh, a tool with which we begin to observe things. Right? As soon as you distance something, it's not me, not mine. Um, it would seem that uh, as babies, we don't, have a, we don't seem to live in a three-dimensional world. It's all seemingly all one mass of, it, uh, of, um, of sensations. Like you're, you're just in this cloud of sensations. And uh, what they say is that when you put one of these string of rattles in front of the baby and it's sort of reaching out and hitting them, it's actually creating this third dimension. It's actually feeling its way through this mass. And very slowly, this, this other world begins to appear. And um, it would seem that, I think it's by the age of six months, is it, or something? That the first object appears as an object outside this mass, which is usually um, mother. Now, by, the, by, I don't know what age, maybe one year or something, we've created this outside world, right? It's very distinct from us. And uh, we're definitely um, aware of ourselves being little beings within this world, I would say around about three or something. Perhaps uh, somebody might enlighten me on that. But at some point in early childhood, there's me and there's the rest of it. Okay? Now, what we're doing is we are objectifying the inner world just as much as we've objectified the outer world. And just as the outer world has these walls and this atmosphere in the room, so when you look inward, you have the walls of your body and the atmosphere of your mind. And all you're doing is turning the inside into an outside. And you're beginning to identify more and more with the knowing, which is this observing. And that process is the process of non-attachment, right? You are actually creating a place within yourself which is distinct from everything up until now we've presumed ourselves to be. This body, uh, these emotions, these thoughts. Hmm? So that process is just continuous until there arises out of that this quality of the knowing, and that's the word I prefer for it, the Buddha within. Various traditions have ways of pointing to it. And it's... Um, the, the knowing, it's, it's, um, it's a very um, felicitous construction in, in English because it's a noun, but it's also a verb. And therefore it stops you clinging onto it as a something something, you know, right? If I, if I were to say the spirit or uh, that which knows or the one who knows, it immediately congeals into something, at which point you create a self, see? But when you look at the process, when you look at what is, what, what the, this, um, what the process is or what the, uh, what it is you're actually experiencing, you're experiencing this constant knowing. So this knowing is the Buddha, the Buddha within. Buddha just means the one who knows. So, from a spiritual point of view, 
Mm? We are trying to discover that within us which is not part of this form of the conditioned world. That's all. And the Buddha points to it in various ways, mainly in the negative way. So the unborn, the undying, see, that which doesn't die, is not born, doesn't die, is not conditioned, mm? is not compounded, is not made up of something, see? And he also talks about it in a very positive way. There is a consciousness, he says, which is untouched by the six senses. So that's your five senses plus the mind itself. Untouched by the six senses. In other words, untouched by the phenomenal world um, without boundary, because there's no phenomena there. It's only phenomena that creates boundary. It's only the walls here that create a boundary to this room. And in all directions full of light. So it's not as though, you know, I'm always, because of the, um, the way Buddhism was especially taught in the past, it's presented sometimes as a sort of um, clever nihilistic argument. So you're not your body and mind, you're not these body-mind, so therefore you never were, so you're not actually annihilating anything, because you never were, <laughs> you're just waking up to the fact that you never were the body and mind. But what the Buddha discovered was... Uh, this level of consciousness. So if we look at our experience in terms of levels of consciousness, this is something we mentioned this morning, you'll see that there's a a body self, there's an emotional self, there's a thought self, there's this observing self, which is a very subtle state. And by through that process of abstracting ourselves from that process, that comes to us occasionally, the experience of just being the knowing. And you'll know that uh, you've touched upon that when there is this, uh, you're looking at, say, something in the body, like your, an emotion or a pain or, or, just, or just the breath, or just the breath, and you will lose that, self, that, that, that self-consciousness. You'll lose that sense of some body observing. And in the pure observing state, you see, and it has to last some time before we catch on to it, you'll see there's no sense of self and there's no sense of time. Time and self arise together. So that's where we're sort of heading towards, and that was the first noble truth. Hmm? These three characteristics. In the second noble truth, he points directly to the psychological trigger which is causing us problems, and that's the desire. Now, it's not all desire. It's this desire which is seeking pleasure, seeking happiness in the sensual world. It's a specific type of desire. And in the Pali, it's a different word. So we have two words for desire. One is chanda, which can either be skillful or unskillful. But the word tanha is something which is specific to the desire which is causing us problems. And it's that attitude within us of seeking happiness in the phenomenal world which is creating a wrong relationship with the world as it is. And that indulgence or aversion to what we don't like is where the suffering arises. So that's another thing that we can practice um, you know, through our meditation is, for instance, when we're eating, that's the time that we are trying to find a relationship with food which no longer gives us any problems. 
And that relationship is what has to come from a right intention, which is the right desire, which is to nourish the body. Now, you can't get rid of, just like that, these old desires which we can see are unskillful. You can't just get rid of greed by saying, you're greed, now get out of it. You can't, it won't happen like that. We just know it's there, we know it's, we feel its energy, and we keep displacing our attention, you see, on the right intention. But you don't push that other thing away. You're still aware of that added energy which is coming from seeking happiness in food. Hmm? Now, uh, I came across a term in, um, in, med- in, in, in the medical world of, uh, what is it now, disuse atrophy. Which, if you, if you break a leg and you have it in plaster for six months, you lose muscle. And the reason you lose muscle is because you're not using your leg. And uh, once you've lost it, it's very difficult to regrow it. So this is exactly what you're doing. By, by simply not reinforcing greed, reinforcing aversion, reinforcing anxiety, it's atrophying, it's actually dying away. Okay? So you don't have to do anything. This is, this is a, a core insight that you don't have to do anything about your personality or character uh, to change it in terms of the negative side. Hmm? All you have to do is stop indulging it and itself will just die away. And this is, of course, matched by using that energy which is released to develop the better side of ourselves. That's the more active side. And that's what we're doing when we practice meditation. Every time we sit and meditate, we're developing these seven factors of enlightenment. We're developing calmness. We're developing this intelligence. We're developing our understanding of the Dharma. We're developing focus of mind. All these things come natural by just doing the practice. Now, uh, depend origination, it's, uh, it's a bit too much to go in uh, of this uh, tonight, but it's recognizing that there is a little moment when we form a relationship to what we're experiencing. And uh, if we can try and catch that, uh, in our meditation, it really, we really awaken up to the fact that pleasurable feelings arise naturally, both physical and mental feelings, emotional states, things like that. And just try to catch your relationship to that, your reaction to it, because that's where the problem is. And then by doing that, we don't make the mistake of trying to get rid of pleasure, trying to get rid of uh, beautiful emotional states. After all, the Buddha lives in you know, mental states which we call the illimitables. It's either in a state of love, compassion, joy, or equanimity, just calmness. That's his, those would be his natural states. And those are our natural states when, uh, when we let go of this other stuff. So that's the... Uh, Second noble truth, which is directing us to uh, this psychological point where we can actually see, feel the suffering. That's where the felt suffering is. Hmm? In the uh, third noble truth, he states that there is an end to suffering. He doesn't use the word nirvana. He just says there is an end to this suffering. Hmm? Now, if you think about that... hmm? There is an end to suffering. 
mean, that's one hell of a statement to make, isn't it? <laughs> I don't know of any Western psychotherapy that tells you that there is an end to suffering. There's an accommodation, there's an ease. I don't know of any, anybody who's come across the end of suffering. Hmm? And one of the reasons is that nobody in the West has yet, uh, independently anyway, discovered where the core problem lies. And it lies, it lies in this relationship that we call the self. Now, when that goes, when you touch upon that, a great fear arises because that's your identity. That's why death is so painful to us. That's why we, you know, we, we're freaked out when, it's, when, it, when somebody dies or worse, when we have to go. That's the, <laughs> that, the measure of fear and terror that we feel at death is the measure of that delusion. If, there's, if, if, if we don't have that wrong relationship to the body, how can we possibly be afraid of it, of it passing, of it, of it disappearing and collapsing? So that's where, you know, the Buddha really sort of strikes home. And in a sense, that's where the, uh, you might say, the spiritual turning comes. And then, of course, he lays out the Eightfold Path, you see. And these were laid out like the doctors of his time, that uh, you name the disease, you give its cause, its prognosis, and then the, the medicine that you need for the disease. So he laid it out in the way that the doctors, the Ayurvedic doctors of his time would have, would have explained, uh, would have treated an illness. And the first one is this right understanding. So in right understanding, it's a case of just you know, going through the process of thinking for ourselves what the Buddha's taught so that it becomes our own, as it were, intellectual knowledge. And this, and this is this uh, magical um, uh, relationship between the intellect and intelligence. Um, the intellect is not intelligent. Right? The intellect is words, concepts are lifeless. It's like um, paint to, a, to an artist. The paint does not have intelligence. It depends how he puts the paint on the, on the canvas, which turns it into a picture. So this intelligence that we are, this intuitive intelligence, uses words, uses concepts to inform itself. Hmm? The problem is that we confuse that we confuse the intellect with words and the cleverness of thought with this actual intuitive capacity. And um, yeah, part of our meditation, part of the process of meditation, is to separate those two. Uh, I have um, a friend, for instance, who's a mathematician. Well, he was. <laughs> he gave it up. And uh, he would say that he would struggle with this problem and then he'd go to sleep on it. And often he'd wake up in the morning and the answer would be in front of him. So it was though the answer arose without any particular point of evolution, you might say, in the thought. It was just that there was a grasp of the problem. You might, I'm sure you all know the story of Archimedes and his bath. And <laughs> so he's got this problem, this insoluble problem of you know, how to get the specific gravity of, of a golden crown. Now, if I remember my uh, GCE physics, 
you have to get both the volume and the weight and you divide one into the other or something and you get this particular um, uh, number which relates to whatever metal or object you, you're, you're trying to discover what it, uh, you're trying to discover what, what it's made of so <clears throat> he tried to how he can find the weight easy enough but how do you find the uh, volume of an irregular shape you see and it was right there when he'd relaxed his mind, gave up on it, slipping into his bath, that he realized that, <laughs> that the, the, the amount of water displaced equaled the volume of his own body. So uh, he cracked it. And he did it when he was completely relaxed, see, when he'd stopped thinking. But, and here's the paradox, he'd never have got there without the thinking. This is a paradox. So we have to go through this process of thinking about the Dharma, you see, and that leads us to this investigation. And it's in the investigation that it becomes a reality for us, a direct experience. Hmm? And that's when they, this delusion we talk about, which is in the eye, collapses. So long as it remains at an intellectual level, it can inform us, but it won't have a systemic effect. It only has a systemic effect when it's a direct experience. And that's what this first part is, this samaditi, this right, this right understanding. So there are levels of that. And the one that uh, Vipassana is leading to is a direct experience of one of these three characteristics. Okay? Then this has to drop systemically then. So, you know, it, it, it can happen naturally, but we can also, shall we say, um, encourage the process. And that is into right attitude. So now, attitude is not to be here confused with emotion. An attitude is a way of relating. It's, a, it's, um, it's prior to an emotion. So often, for instance, when you're practicing metta, when you're practicing loving kindness, you might not feel like doing it. In fact, you might feel depressed or, or anxious or, or something else. But you keep putting your intention into the phrases, right? May you be happy, may you be free of sufferings, whatever phrases you're using. And eventually you'll see that the heart begins to respond because what is conditioning is this will. See? So we, even no matter how you feel, you see, you keep doing the metta, you keep doing that practice, and eventually the heart mirrors. The heart mirrors the intention. And what this shows us is that attitude is prior to the emotional states. Hmm? If you think that attitude is the emotional state, then you'll be governed by your emotional state. So if you can only be loving when you feel loving, you're in a real hole. Because eh? <laughs> what do you do when you don't feel loving? You've got to go around hating, haven't you? See? So this attitude is comes about through the process from this right understanding. Now, if we just take one example of compassion. So, uh, one of the insights that we might uh, come through this practice of vipassana is that everything is contingent. This is one of the core understandings of the Buddha, by which he means that everything arises dependent on something else. We are here very much dependent on the air in this room, right? <laughs> Everything is dependent on something else. Nothing arises of its own cause, right? There's no entity. There's nothing in this universe 
that is not, that is independent of it. Hmm? Now, this contingency, when it drops into the heart, expresses itself through that relatedness that we have with other people. And that's what compassion is. Compassion is the heart's understanding of contingency, of dependency. See? And uh, you can do that with the others too. Love, joy, whatever, whatever um, beautiful, virtuous state arises, it's arisen because of this understanding of interdependency. Now, once, once the attitude is, is moved, so you've got right understanding, right attitude, it expresses itself through right speech, right action, and right livelihood. So, uh, speech, um, just in what you say, expresses your wisdom or lack of it. You can't, you can't help that. What we do is, generally speaking, in the psychology of the Buddha, to do with morality. Um, because when we behave in a non-virtuous way, it, it's actually manifesting our delusion. Right? When we're being selfish, it means that we're not seeing contingency. See, when we're feeling averse uh, to something, when we're getting irritated with something or hating something, it means that um, we're trying to push something away because we're blaming it for our problems. So again, we don't see the right connection to things. So <clears throat> this movement down into uh, right action is normally expressed through uh, virtuous action. And uh, it's normally expressed in a negative sense of what you don't do. So that's why we took these precepts before we started these training rules, not to harm living beings. But remember, it's, it's not just to ha- not to harm living beings, it's also to protect them. So whenever you get this negativity, it's always that you're trying to also develop the opposite. See? Then um, you get right livelihood. So one of the problems I think we come across is if you take away desire, you know, can you be ambitious? See? So <clears throat> remember that once you see that we are interrelated and your attitude is one of love and compassion, right? without getting sloppy, you understand. You want to offer, for the benefit of your immediate society and all beings, the talents that you have. So that's the attitude of service. And that's what right livelihood is. So it really doesn't matter what you do in life, so long as the attitude of service is there. Save for certain professions. <laughs> arms dealing, trafficking people, all that sort of stuff. But so long as the job itself is wholesome, see, it doesn't matter. What matters spiritually is your attitude uh, with which you do it, which is one of service. And if in giving that service, you can see that there is work that you are capable of doing, then you put your name forward. Because you've done it with an attitude of service, should they not want your services, you're not hurt by it. Yeah? You're relieved, if anything, that you don't have to, <laughs> that you're not called upon to give more. So anytime you give something and, there's, and, you're, and it's not taken and you feel hurt by it, then it's not coming from a pure sense of service. Something else has crept into the equation. Okay? 
So that's the governing uh, quality of, uh, of uh, right livelihood. And it's very interesting that the Buddha should have uh, created a special category for that uh, because you might have included logically in right action. But if you consider the effect of right livelihood upon, upon a person, upon yourself, and the characteristics that certain livelihoods can develop. Yeah. So it's very different, isn't it, from being, say, a nurse or an obvious helping profession to, say, a soldier. You're going to develop different characteristics. So the job that you have is actually also has the effect of developing certain virtues uh, which are part and parcel of your growth spiritually. And you'll know that in the greater Buddhist tradition, you know, the old um, uh, Kung Fu, Shaolin, <laughs> Shaolin uh, fighting monks and all that. See, so it's not as though, it's not as though uh, being a soldier is, is negative. It depends why you're soldiering, why you've decided to enter that particular form of livelihood. So that's, you can see the process is systemic, isn't it? It comes down from right understanding into the heart as attitude and outwards through right speech, right action and right livelihood. And of course it can come back on itself. So if you have right livelihood, it's going to affect your attitude, it's going to affect your understanding. If you start from the attitude of compassion, it immediately puts you in contact with interdependency and contingency. See? So it's not as though we, we can't start at other, start, at other points in the, in the, in, in the uh, Eightfold Path. But the Buddha himself um, generally you know, began, because this was his own experience, he started from this right understanding. And the final three are to do with developing this awareness. So right effort, which is just to be aware, and right concentration, which is just to, you know, keep the, to keep the attention steady. And again, our problem is, is how to take what we are practicing here into daily life. So remember that it's extremely simple. There's nothing, you don't have to be, you don't have to, you don't have to be a great intellect to become you know, fully liberated. In fact, there was the case of, um, I always forget his name, a very dull man who um, he said that when... Because remember, they had to learn the, the, the teachings of the Buddha. They had to learn these phrases or verses. And he said, when he learned a phrase from the Buddha, it knocked out of his head the one he just learned. <laughs> so so um, his brother advised him, who was also a monk, uh, to, to leave the order. And when they, the Buddha heard about this, he uh, came to see him. And he gave him a very simple exercise. He said, just take a piece of cloth, um, which normally <coughs> you, uh, a monk has with him, and just keep wiping your face and rubbing it. And as you're doing that, just keep saying impermanence, impermanence, just seeing the process of change, you see. Just rubbing it, wiping the face, seeing it getting dirty, uh, and just rubbing it against you, and just keep saying impermanence. Well, this man became fully liberated. Now, it didn't work for me. <laughs> so, so the Buddha has certain ways of getting into people but what it shows us is that you know, this isn't a big intellectual effort yeah? this isn't an intellectual effort it's, it's prior to that and um, 
when it comes to work, you know, if you, there are two qualities. The quality of attention, where you put your attention, and the quality of care, where you put your heart. And, of course, prior to that is your attitude. So when you go towards the workplace, you give yourself a proper, wholesome attitude. And then when you get there, you devote yourself to the task, whatever it is. Paying attention with the right attitude coming from the heart. And then any work you do becomes a process of, um, of liberation. I'll just end off with a, uh, a little experience I had when I was, uh, when I was a schoolboy and, and uh, used to go for work, you know, uh, during school holidays. I would have been 16, I suppose. And uh, I ended up in this cake factory. And it was a, uh, a conveyor belt. And uh, these women uh, were all lined. There was only women, and they stuck me on this conveyor belt. And the cakes came round at an enormous speed. And my job <laughs> was to put the cherry on top of these cakes. <laughs> well, it took a certain dexterity. <laughs> and every so often I'd miss one, and, I'd, you know, and somebody would run after and get it. Sometimes I had to shut the machine down. They were getting quite upset with me. And uh, I found it very boring. I thought, oh God, I've ended up putting cherries on cakes. See? Uh, even though I was being paid for it. Now you see, if I had been introduced to meditation, what an opportunity to develop focus, <laughs> attention. <laughs> I mean, it would have been so, and I'd have been there, hoop, hoop, hoop. <laughs> like, <laughs> but I, I lost the opportunity. This remains a sadness. <laughs> so, um, that's a sort of an overview of uh, his teaching and how he came to it. Hmm? And the important thing is that he himself had to struggle. He himself had to go through the process of self-enlightening. You see? And in that sense, he is an exemplar. He's our exemplar. Uh, but he's more than that. He's actually an archetype because we have to go through the same process to find liberation. So that archetype, in Jungian terms it is, already is within us. The Buddha is already within us and is seeking expression, is seeking liberation. And um, often when, you, when you're in doubt as to whether you should be doing something, you know, just to ask the Buddha within and to rest with that intuition and to have the patience to wait for that intuition to manifest as a, a very clear message to us is often a very skillful thing to do. Hmm? We tend to sometimes rush into decisions because we don't like being in a state of doubt. But if you're, if you're patient enough, often the, uh, this, in, this inner wisdom... Uh, will speak to you. So I can only hope my words have been of some assistance. May you be liberated from all your suffering, sooner rather than later. Now you're supposed to say, 
Sadhu, sadhu, sadhu. Please. This means well done, you see. Now, <laughs> there are scriptures in which the Buddha, in which the monks remain silent. They didn't like what the Buddha said. <laughs> You'll read it, and the monks remained silent. They didn't, they didn't like what he said. So if you take a little five-minute break, and then we'll come back and do some walking meditation together, yeah? Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.